Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Well, good morning again, everybody. Hey, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 today. Uh, we're going to look at the first six verses. Uh, we are finishing up for our summer series through Exodus. Uh, and some of you that uh, uh, are Bible nerds or at least a little familiar with the Bible know that's not the last chapter of Exodus. And you're exactly right. We're hitting the pause button. Uh, we are going to come back. There's a lot of material left to color, uh, to color, to cover. This is going to be a fun sermon, apparently. Uh, and uh, so we're going to get there, but uh, we've made it to Mount Sinai. And so we're going to hang out here uh, today uh, with the people of God and uh, the voice of God. Um, and we've been talking about this uh, from the perspective of understanding that what God's doing is he's intervening within creation and he's creating a people for his name. Uh, uh, the reason we're calling it dwell is we believe that what God wants to do is he wants us to walk in his personal presence, that God is desperately desires, doesn't need, but for some reason desires uh, to be with us and to be among his creation. Uh, and he has been so faithful uh, to pursue us through all of our brokenness and our sin and our idolatry. Uh, he is committed uh, to bringing us into the reality of what it means to be in his presence. And the thing about presence is presence is powerful. Um, presence is transformative. As a matter of fact, uh, in many respects, uh, presence uh, equals worship. As a matter of fact, I got a little formula up here I wanted to kind of play off of a little bit. Uh, presence equals worship. Uh, and I think the reason that God wants to be with his people is so that when things are in the right standing between uh, humans and God, then God is adequately understood for who he is. Uh, there's a lot of different opinions about God. Uh, there's a lot of different perspectives. All of us are in a growing knowledge of who he is is. Uh, hopefully you're still, you don't feel like you've arrived. Hopefully you're still uh, at a point where you realize there's more to know about God. Hopefully you understand your view of scripture is not, has not arrived yet. Uh, mine certainly hasn't. Uh, we're continuing to plumb the depths of the eternality of God. And, and so we give ourselves to the task, task. But what God wants us to do is to understand that when we're in his presence, that presence is powerful because presence is worship. Uh, as a matter of fact, Worship and presence are so powerful that it becomes formative to who we are. It means that we become like what we worship. And if you could trace that equation back from formation to worship and worship to presence, then it's a really good way for us to actually think about life. Because uh, when you think about your life, uh, think about where you're present and how it shapes you. I mean, a uh, a short list. I mean, there's tons of different things, but if you just think about being present on social media, um, you know, I, I don't want to make a sermon about social media. I'm no expert when it comes to social media, but I do know that uh, it bears true in my own life because I get the little update uh, when I'm sitting over there sometime in the morning. It gives me my weekly update of how much time I've spent on my phone. Uh, and it shows you how much time you spend on various social media sites and so on and so forth. And that has definitely grown as I've gotten older. I never thought I'd be 48 and like look and say, well, you're spending this much time on social media, but you can't get away from it because that's where you're present. Uh, some of us, I mean, even if you're like, um, you're out to eat, you know, you're at a restaurant and you're with somebody in the booth, but you're on your phone. 
uh, it's kind of like you're present, but you're really not. You're somewhere else. And it's simply because you're on a social media site. Uh, but some of us, we're not big social media people, but we are into politics. Uh, we're really present there. And uh, I will say that politics are necessary. Uh, I think being civically minded is necessary. Uh, so this is not anti-politics, but it is an understanding that the power of the presence of politics in our lives does shape us. Uh, it shapes our perspective on things. It, 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 it turns us into different things and uh, it causes us to think differently about things. And, and some of that we just get from the news. Uh, I, I would guess that if I went to some of your houses, I would go on and there would be news on. Uh, and for some of you, it may be more than others. Some of you, when you walk in the door, it might be the first thing you do is you click on the news, whatever your favorite network is. And it just kind of is playing on a loop uh, in your home, in your ear, you're present with it, you're ingesting it, you're taking it in and it begins to shape you. Uh, for some of us, it's not that distant. Some of us, it's just others' opinions. Uh, there's a, people around us and uh, we're in the presence of their opinions all the time and what they say about us. I mean, if you think about parenting, parenting, the words that you speak have so much power because of the presence of those words. They have the power to transform one way or the other where nobody would deny that. But for some of us, it's a, you don't have to look outside. You can look inside to your own day, like how you spend your time. For some of you, it's your own habits. It's my habits. I mean, you're present in the same spots, in the same routine. And those things, we would say, are transformative. They, they shape us. The presence of those things in our life uh, begin to affect who we are. And for some of us, you can't get away from probably the deepest thing about you, and it's your own feelings. Um, all of us have those things, and that's why I'm so grateful for therapists and counselors and uh, mental health professionals and pastors and friends and family, because none of us were meant to just carry our feelings by ourselves. And you can look around us, and uh, maybe you know about this all too well, is that within the mental health crisis in the world, like these things are powerful. And if you're in the presence of any one of these things, or we could add 200 more things on there, all of us would understand that these are the type of things that affect us, they transform us. But very few of us would correlate these things with worship. We wouldn't think of them as worship because worship is what we just spent the last 30 minutes doing, singing some songs. But what we're gonna look at today, I think is going to give us a different perspective on worship is, what worship is and who God is. And I think it's gonna trace this whole theme back to kind of put a punctuation, exclamation point at the end uh, for the summer to help us to understand who this God is and then being in his presence has transformative power. And I want us to look at these first six verses uh, of Exodus chapter 20. And uh, we're gonna do it a little different than I normally do. We're not gonna go word by word through the whole thing. And some of you are gonna be excited because this will be the first time you've ever been able to take notes from me. Um, so that'll be fun. But we're going to take a few points from this first six verses of Exodus chapter 20. And uh, it's a famous passage. It's where we have gotten what we are typically referred to as the Ten Commandments. But this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And this is the way that it's recorded. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, 
and a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, here's what's been happening up to this point. Uh, obviously, uh, there's a group of people that have been rescued. The ancient Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, and God, through his redemption and grace, brought them out, and he's creating them now into a people. And so, when you get to Exodus 20, it's pretty telling that the story of Exodus doesn't begin with thou shalt and thou shalt not. It actually begins with an intervention. It begins with God actually saying, uh, this is who I am. Am. And, and this is a powerful concept that God is active and God is introducing himself to a group of people that do not yet know his personal presence. Now, God has started a story in Genesis and through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as the story progressed and they were in captivity for years and years and years, they did not have a familiarity with the presence of God. And so God's redemptive activity, his gracious activity of drawing them out is now, after drawing them out of slavery and making them into a people, is now going to help them to know some things about who he is and who they are. And so I want to give you a list of those things. The first thing is, is, is knowing God by name simply knowing God by name. Now, if you remember back at the beginning of our series uh, earlier in the summer, those of you that were here, one of the earliest mentions in Exodus 3 was when God introduced himself to Moses. And this is what Moses' question was for the people. He says, uh, how am I supposed to tell him? Who am I supposed to tell him sent me? And this is God says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites because they don't have a personal knowledge of him. I am has sent me to you, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name that you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, there's some really important things that come out of uh, just this idea that God introduces himself to Moses, Moses introduces them to God, and now when we get to Exodus chapter 20, God is revealing more of himself progressively to them. Uh, it's like any relationship. The more time you are with someone, the more you get to know them. And God now has been taking them on this journey. They're camped out for the better part of a year at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so now is the next installment of God revealing who he is. And this is a return to this Exodus 3 motif that says, first thing is that God is a personal God that God is a God that can be known. Now, this, was, uh, this might not sound like new information to you because I think in our culture, particularly in the South, if you've been a part of our church, we've, we've said this and said this and said this, um, that God is a personal God. But this, don't get, let it get lost on you, that this is not a normal concept in the ancient Near East. Gods were not personal. Gods were capricious, vindictive. Uh, you had to uh, uh, basically come up with, uh, come up with names for God uh, to try to give them names for who they were and to say about who they were. Uh, this was not normal for God to introduce himself in a personal way. But the story of scripture for us 
all the way up through the New Testament to today is that God is a personal God, that God wants to be known, that God wants to be with his people. That's Genesis chapters one through two. Uh, and that is the end of the book as well, that God ultimately wants to be with his people. But knowing and introducing his name was not just the fact that he's personal, it's also that it's a powerful name. Uh, when, uh, when the name was given to Moses, remember how the whole story started was, I want you to go and I want you to also tell Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet right now, that views himself as God, I want you to introduce the fact that he's not, that there's somebody else that's calling the shots. And that person is me, the great I am. And so the name that is a personal name is also a powerful name. Now, that's important for us to hold in tension for just a second, okay? Because uh, most of us, we, we deviate one side or the other. We'll go one heavy on one side or the other. For some of us, we really like the personal God. I mean, we're all about God's personal, God's personal, but we don't think about the fact that God's very powerful. And some of us are on the other side. We're all about God's power and man, his might and his majesty, but we're not really big on the whole personal aspect. It's really these high and lofty ideas about God. But an accurate portrayal or an introduction to God is one that holds in tension the fact that this God is ultra personal and ultra powerful, that he is both those things simultaneously married together in one person, in one entity, so that we can know the full, the full picture of who this God is. And in order to understand that, he's not just personal or powerful, but he's also permanent. Notice the permanence of his name, that this God is not here today, gone tomorrow, that this is who he is from generation to generation. Uh, the way that God introduces himself is he goes back in history and he says, who I have always been, I will continue to always be. Uh, if you look back to your grandfather and his grandfather before him and go on before him, that's who I was. And if you go from generation to generation, so it doesn't matter if it's um, 2000 BC or it's 2021 AD, then he is the exact same God. So this is important. And when you get to Exodus chapter uh, 20, what God is doing before he ever says, this is who you should be, is he reintroduces himself, that he's a personal, he's a powerful, and he's a permanent God. But the question then is much like the question now is it's one thing to believe that there is a God and it's one thing to even concede that God is personal and to understand and be able to kind of mentally grasp the idea that he's eternal. Okay, if you can wrap your mind around that. The question down here on the ground is, well, what does he want? What does this God want? Um, and so what they're getting in Exodus 6, I mean, excuse me, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, is they're getting the introduction to who this God is, but they're also getting a really clear description of what this God wants. Now, this, don't let this get missed on us as well, because this was not normal either. Uh, there was a lot of confusion about, uh, depending on who you worshiped as a God, what that particular God wanted. Now, there's a slew of different types of gods uh, throughout history. There certainly was in Egypt, uh, but you don't have to look even that far. I mean, you could fast forward in the timeline. You can get up into Roman history. There's uh, like Mars, the, the god of war. You can have Mammon, the god of wealth. You can have Aphrodite, the god of sex. Uh, and, or you could have like a, what, what Paul dealt with in Ephesus and how he was, uh, if you read about that in 
Exodus 20 through 22. And they were at the temple of Artemis and she was a fertility God. And uh, uh, women would pray to her in order to provide for them safety through childbirth because it was such a dangerous proposition uh, at this point in time for them to actually be able to give birth. The mortality rate uh, for infants and for women during this period was ridiculously high. And they would do whatever they could in order to say, well, maybe this God would want this. And they would pray to this God and ask this God to actually help them through a really practical matter. But it was guesswork. What does this God want? Hopefully this will appease them. Hopefully this will provide for for me in this situation. But they never had the surety. They never had the confidence because these gods, you didn't really know what they wanted. Uh, Matter of fact, a good evidence of that uh, was found in this book. Uh, it's called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters by Carmen Joy Imes. Uh, she is a associate professor of Old Testament uh, and got a PhD from Wheaton. And uh, this is a great book. I highly recommend it. I actually got it from Veronica. Um, and there's one part in here that I was going to read that kind of speaks to this idea because I think sometimes we think, well, in the ancient world, they all understood who God was and what God was about. But let me read to you just really quickly. Uh, it's called prayer to any God. It's actually, um, it's actually a text found uh, from Assyria, ancient Assyria and Babylon. And it's basically found in their literature and it really begins to convey the idea that there was a lot of confusion with who God was and what God wanted. See if this doesn't confuse you a little bit. This is the actual translation of that from this ancient text. It was same period that this was written from Exodus chapter 20. This is how it begins. It says, may my Lord's angry heart be reconciled May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. O my Lord, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. O my God, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. O my goddess, Many are my wrongs, great are my sins. I got confused reading it because it's repetitive. Oh God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. Oh goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. I do not know what wrong I have done. I do not know what sin I have committed. I do not know the abomination I have perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. Now, it's a little confusing but you get the point, right? Like this is utter confusion. This is instability. This is living in a, in a world that you're trying to live down here and there's gods up here and you're trying to live and appease these gods, but you don't know who they are and you don't know what they want. And so the story of Exodus is a story of God entering into the story and introducing himself to a group of people that they could know this powerful, personal, and permanent God in such a way that they would actually know to remove the guesswork and understand what this God wants. Now, don't take this lightly because this is the foundation for us to actually begin to have a relationship with God. How would you have a relationship with God that you did not know and that you did not understand? I mean, the first thing that we do when we introduce ourselves to someone, what's the first thing you say? Hey, my name is. 
That's how we get to know someone. We get to know someone through their name. And then over time, we get to spend more time with them and we know what makes them tick. We know uh, what they like and what they don't like. And the deeper the relationship goes, if you start dating someone or you marry, you marry someone or you raise kids or you have a longstanding friendship, the longer that relationship goes, you begin to move past introduction to actually understand the heart of the individual. And the relationship deepens at the same pace that the knowledge of the relationship deepens. And so from that, you can imagine what God is doing at Sinai. He's redeemed them and brought them out by his grace. And now he's going to say, I want to get to know you. This is who I am. What a huge gift there is. Now that knowing of his name and that knowing of what he wants also leads to a Another knowing. It's the knowing of the nature of the relationship, uh, to know the nature of the relationship. Now, when I say Ten Commandments, there's a significant portion of the room that this is what you visualize right here, right? Who is that? Anybody know? Charlton Heston, right? Uh, if you're probably over 45, you know who that is. Uh, if you're under that, you're probably like, I don't know, I'm gonna have to Google it. All right. Uh, a lot of us, when we think of like the Ten Commandments, we think of that old movie, The Ten Commandments, right? Uh, and Charlton Heston, who plays Moses in there, he's carrying these stone tablets down. Now, uh, I don't know what's actually written on those. I didn't, I didn't check that out. But I do know that if you Google Ten Commandments, you're going to get a lot of stock photos of two stone tablets. And it's probably going to be something, the majority of them are going to be like, five of the 10 commandments on one side, five on the other. Uh, and that's kind of what most of our image uh, of that is. Well, if you, if you think about it or if you study it, you know that's probably not the way that the 10 commandments looked. That's more of a Hollywood interpretation of that or a surface level understanding of that. And the reason I can say that, because if you go to Exodus chapter 32, we're told about this, uh, this specific uh, instance and what was on the tablets. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, what's going on here? Is this just like a list or whatever? Well, one thing that comes out in this book, and I've read in a couple other places actually, is what's really happening here is probably more, less like a list and more like a treaty. Uh, the way that m normal treaties would work between two warring nations uh, or two enemies, basically, is they would contract, a, you know, a, a treaty and it would define the terms of the relationship. This is a new relationship. We were at war. We were apart. Now we're at peace. Here is the, the notes of the covenant. Okay. We're going to inscribe them. You would take these inscriptions and then you would take them back to your respective nation and you would place them in your respective temple. And then the gods would look over 
the specific treaties from their perspective to ensure that down here on earth, the parties were actually follow through on the treaty. And so it was under the, under the oversight of the gods, if you will. And so what you have here from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, it seems, is that what God is doing is he's contracting uh, or he's uh, uh, inscribing a treaty between God and his people to dictate the nature of the relationship. So he's introducing himself. He's saying, this is what I want, but then he's also saying, here's how we interact. Here are the terms of our agreement. And God himself is the one that oversees this because we know who is the one that did not follow through on the treaty. That's us. And in this case, it was the ancient Israelites. And so what does God do? God gives them instructions, which actually in the original Hebrew language, it actually is, sometimes you'll see it called the Decalogue, which, is, which means 10 words. All right, and so this is more of like uh, less a, a, a legal code than it is a, a kind of a code of conduct. It's supposed to define in general terms, this is who this God is like, this is how we're supposed to interact. And that's why when you look at it, you can say, well, these are really good things and applicable in society because I mean, this is a good general rule for how people should interact. Originally given to God's people, but then it's been able to extrapolate and expand. Why? Because this is the nature of the way that God says that he wants to interact with people. Now, from that, what did we learn? Well, what did they learn? They learned how they are then to live in light of this relationship. And the first thing that I would say is they, they learned to reflect what is good, to actually say this is what's good. Now, I'm going to kind of take you down a path for a second because why is that important? Well, if you were to, uh, uh, let's just say you could transport CNN and Fox News back uh, to this time period, to the time of the Exodus, and you were to imagine what were the news stories that would have been more come up? What, were, what was everybody talking about? Well, they would have had a lot of different opinions about everything, of course. Uh, but what they would probably go to in this case, where they would be a, a headline story, and then there would be a lot of other stories. And here's what you would probably find. You would find that their news stories actually looked a lot like ours, and perhaps, honestly, a lot worse because their news stories would have had child sacrifice, there would have been all kinds of rampant sexual immorality, there would have been all kinds of abuse that was going, were going on. It would have been nation toppling nation and fighting for power and coups and all those kind of things. All that stuff was happening. Now, if that was the environment then, much like now, the question within society would be the question at the heart, what is good? What is good? In a world that is full of evil, when evil has run amok, then there has to be something that stands out and says, this is what goodness looks like. And this ties back to the identity that God created his people to be. If you just flip back one chapter, remember what we talked about last week, Exodus 19, verse 5? This is what God said about this group of people. And if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Remember what that is. That's someone that builds bridges to God. 
That is someone that stands out as a holy nation. That means that there's a group of people within all this evil and pain and suffering and treachery, uh, you know, greed, uh, all these things, people using each other, lying to each other, that there is something that stands out as good. And I would say that people would look at it and they might not even believe what you believe, but they would at least be able to test the fact that like, I don't know, those people sound a little crazy. They're talking about some God that said I am and there's some story about a sea being parted and uh, I heard something about some bread falling out of the sky. I don't know if I'm there with all that, but what I will say is those are the best people I know. Man, look at the way they love other people. Look how generous they are. Look how kind they are. Look how at peace they are. And you would be able to look at that and out of all the evil, you would be able to know how to live and people would see it and they would say, man, that's, that's good. And then from that, what would they do? They would trace that back to the source. And what would happen if they know that it was good, if we go to that next slide, then they would be able to go all the way back upstream to identify with their God. They would say, this is what this God is like. Now, your house has probably a certain set of, um, a certain set of rules, a certain set of statutes, uh, uh, a way you behave as part of your family. And if you came to our house, it would be the same way. Um, and there'd be some similarities perhaps, but there would also be uniquenesses. One of the things is probably, I don't know if you have or not, but we have a chore chart at our house. Uh, and it's basically what uh, uh, we, uh, we kind of all take a part of the chore chart and that's what we do. Every week, everybody's kind of got their thing to do and you kind of sign on and I'm doing this part. And uh, without getting into the detail, that's kind of what it means to be part of our family. Now, it would be really weird, wouldn't it, if I came up here and I was in the foyer and I came to your family and I'm saying, hey, here's what you're supposed to do on the chore chart. Why did you not follow through on your responsibility on the chore chart? And you would be like, because I'm not in your family, right? And you would think, at least I'm odd, or you would get really angry and confused, and you'd be fine at another church because you'd think, that guy's wacko, right, for asking me to do that. And it would make sense because this is unique to this family. They were supposed, this is not the rules for the whole world. This was what God was given to that particular family, the people of God, in order to reflect and to identify with their God. And this has everything to do with the way that we understand God. Matter of fact, if you look at verse four in Exodus 20, it talks about making yourself an image. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. Now, some serious-minded people take that very extremely literally. As a matter of fact, they would not watch the movie, The Ten Commandments. And the reason they wouldn't watch it is because it has a portrayal or a depiction, an image of God, an image of heavenly things. Uh, they would not be for like a coloring page in preschool that would have uh, some depiction or symbolism of God because they would say that, well, that's in... That's in uh, contradiction to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that God has given uh, in this case. Now, I think that's really extreme and not the intent 
<clears throat> excuse me, not the intent of this. I think the intent of this personally is that this is getting to the heart of the idolatry of our hearts that we make things to worship. We will make things to worship given to ourselves. Why? Because we will be in the presence of things and we will be transformed by things. Normally what happens is we have gods that we create and we carry. What this is saying that there is only one creator and he's the one who carries us. And this is that God. So we are not to make things and worship them. God makes us to worship him. And I think this is a paradigm shift for uh, a lot of people because this is to put ourselves not as the people, as the prime movers in our own lives, the captains of our own souls, but to actually look to God and say, God, you're the creator. You're the one that carries us and you are the only one and we are to image you. We are not to create images of you. And so I think that gets to the heart of what he's trying to say. And I think that leads to the, the benefit of that, which is the third element of knowing how to live, which is to live in congruence with life, to live in congruence. That means you're not living in dissonance with the way that the world uh, was created uh, to be for you to exist in and to thrive in. Uh, I've used this illustration before, but it makes sense to me. Uh, I think, uh, you know, sometimes we go fishing, we've got a pond behind our house and we'll go down there and uh, we'll hook a fish, reel it in and, uh, you know, we, we'll get in onto the bank, take the hook off. And you can see really quick that as soon as you get that, that fish out of the water, he's struggling or she's struggling to breathe. Right. I mean, the gills are working and uh, I mean, it's kind of like somebody choking you, which is kind of sad. But if you think about it, like they're, they're trying to breathe. And so we're, we're working fast because we want to we, we catch and release. We're going to throw them back in. We want them to thrive. We want them to grow is what we want them to do. We want them to get big. Uh, but we put them back in the water. Right. And the reason for that is, is because that ecosystem, that environment that that fish was created for actually does not prohibit life, it provides for it. Contrary to public, uh, you know, many a public belief that all boundaries are not meant to restrict life, they're actually there to enhance it, right? And just imagine for a second that that fish, we could personify it for a second. And that fish was swam up to the bank and you know, me and the kids, family, we drive up in my truck. We get all of our stuff out. And that, that fish is looking longingly at us and saying, I just wish, kind of like Little Mermaid, up where they run, up where they, you know, I, I wish I had legs. I, I wish I could go and see everything that they could see. I'm missing out on everything. I wish I could dance, you know, all those kind of things. Well, that's all well and good in Disney World. But what we know is that it would be death for that fish to, be, to do that. Because that fish was not designed to live in the same environment, the ecosystem. And so what God is doing is he's actually in this case is he's trying to define for them not to prohibit life, but to actually provide for life. Um, we're built to build a, um, a, uh, a playground out back for Journey Kids Village and all that kind of stuff for the community use. But y'all know what we're going to do when we put the playground in? We're going to build something around the perimeter. Anybody know what it is? What? A fence. Yeah, y'all are so smart, right? Because you know that we want to not prohibit life for the kids. We want to provide for it. And so we put an established boundary around it, not because we're trying to hurt them, but because we're trying to help them, right? 
So this is what God's doing. He's trying to say, let's define, because you're broken and you're fallen, I'm going to introduce myself to you. I'm going to tell you what I want. I'm going to tell you the nature of our relationship. And I'm going to tell you how to live in congruence with life. Matter of fact, this is a lot of the motivation of God. Matter of fact, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, a really good little quick synopsis shows his heart. This is God saying, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands. Why? Just for the sake of it? No. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient and if you are drawn away to do what? To bow down into, to other gods and to worship them you will be transformed into that. It's a transformation process. I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. And the way that the writer places that is he puts the choice in front of you, in front of me. In this case, in front of the Israelites. Because what God in his gracious providence does is he endows you with the ability to choose in his image, because he is not going to coerce you to follow him. And so what does he do? He sets in front of you life and death, blessings and curses, and he calls you to choose. He's always done that. And from that, you're left with a dilemma because you all know the rest of the story, don't you? It all sounds well and good on this front end, but we know the the next episode we we fast forwarded to the next episode we know what's going to happen they are not going to do this and you know yourself well enough to know you haven't done it either and you're not going to do it completely either so there's a dilemma if this is what god has said he's like if this is the nature of the relationship then the 10 words or the 10 commandments have not become a ladder to god at all a way for us to get good. They've actually become an impenetrable wall that we can't get through. And so what's gotta happen? Well, the God that established the treaty that's overseeing the covenant has to get involved because where we are unfaithful, God says he is faithful. He is true to his promise. And so that comes to the last point, which is one of the last things we know is that they are knowing that this is a God of grace. They didn't fully realize all of it yet, but the same God that drew them out of slavery through his grace is the same one that's going to provide for him, for them the way to overcome the impenetrable wall of their imperfection because he wants to provide for life. In order to get that, you really have to go to a whole other sermon series, which we did back last summer, I think, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a scripture in Matthew chapter five in, within the sermon where Jesus actually talks about this provision. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He came to fulfill what we couldn't fulfill. He came to make right what we couldn't make right. The impenetrable wall of our imperfection, he came in perfection and ushered us into freedom. And so with, even within the 10 words in the Old Testament, you've got Jesus who in Matthew's telling of the story mimics 
the process of the Israelites, even down to the fact that they were trying to take the lives of young babies and the, the parents of Jesus had to flee, and even to the point where he is led into the wilderness to be tested, and even to the point where he has to cross the waters through baptism, and even to the point where he goes up to the mountain and he says, listen to me, and he teaches, and he goes to the heart of the matter. He goes past the surface level of trying to be good, and he says, listen, if you, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I'm telling you, it's worse than you thought, because if you've been angry, then you've committed it already. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but let me tell you, it's worse than you thought, that if you've ever had lust in your heart, you've committed it already. If you've ever wanted something that wasn't yours, if you've ever harbored, harbored, uh, harbored bitterness towards someone, if you've ever maintained unforgiveness in your heart, you've got a problem. And Jesus says, the law stands against you, but because I've come, I have fulfilled the law on your behalf. And as a matter of fact, by the time you get to the end of the sermon, he says uh, that famous saying where he talks about if you build your life on these words of mine, then it'll be like you're building your life on a solid rock rather than shifting sands. Because there's only two ways to build. One is by your own standard and your own goodness. And when the rains come and the winds blow, that, that house that you've been building falls with a crash. But if you build your life on the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus, that fulfill all the terms of the relationship on your behalf, then through God's grace, he offers you the opportunity to enter into the relationship. And that's why we are here. And that is why it's called good news. It's because it's built on his promises and his perfection. And that is where Sinai leads. It leads to the Sermon on the Mount. It leads to Jesus. It leads to Calvary. It leads to the resurrection. And it leads to us today. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you bow in prayer as we finish. And maybe you've been trying to uh, treat those uh, 10 words or those 10 commandments as a way to appease God. But Jesus pushes through the surface and he gets to the heart and he says, it's, it, it's worse than you thought, but I'm better than you thought, stronger than you thought. And so for some of you, you just need to take this time just to thank God uh, for his provision. And some of you need to shift from building your life on sand to building it on the rock. And you can do that right now by calling out to Jesus, confessing your sin, repenting of it, turning away from it, and choosing life, choosing to follow him based on what he's provided. And so you can call out to him right now whether in gratitude uh, for the hundredth time or for the first time, you can do that right now. And I would love it if you would do that. I'd like to pray for you as you pray. Father, we thank you so much for your, these words. Thank you for introducing yourself to us. Thank you for uh, entering into a relationship. We thank you for your power. Thank you that you're permanent, God, that you're unchanging yesterday, today, and forever. And God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus and that when we build our life on him, God, we can move past our own weakness, our own sin, our own brokenness 
and we don't have to worry what may come uh, or how we may fail, but we can actually turn to you and have the assurance of knowing that you have provided everything we need that pertains to life and godliness through our knowledge of you. And so God, we worship you, we exalt you, and in your name we pray.